Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I am Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we'll be discussing the role that contemplative practice plays in living in a world in crisis. We'll be discussing how we can cultivate contemplative practices such as mindfulness and meditation, as well as positive qualities such as joy, wonder, and empathy to build resilience, love, and strength that can transform our world. My guest today is Oren J. Sofer, who teaches Buddhist meditation, mindfulness, and communication internationally. He holds a degree in comparative religion from Columbia University and is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication, as well as a somatic experiencing practitioner for the healing of trauma. He's the author of several books, including the book that we'll be discussing today, Your Heart Was Made for This. Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. His teaching has reached people around the world through his online communication courses and guided meditations. You can find out more about Oren J. Sofer, his teaching and events at his website, orenjsofer.com. And I should say Oren is O-R-E-N-J, is actually the word J, J-A-Y, so Oren J, and then Sofer, S-O-F-E-R.com. You can also follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Oren J. Sofer. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Oren J. Sofer. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the podcast to talk about your lovely book. Oh, good morning, and hi, Laurel. I'm happy to be here. Before we begin our dialogue about the importance of contemplative practice in dealing with the crisis that we face in our world today, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. Let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of mindfulness. Om. So let's begin right where we are, letting go of anything that happened earlier today, letting go of any worries about what might happen later, and just being right here right now. First, feel your body in space, whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling your body in space. And then turn your attention to the breath and just notice as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air is now warmer as it has passed through our body and out through the nose. Just staying with the breath, noticing each and every breath. Here's something to contemplate. A quote from Ellen Grace O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director of this program, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Self-knowledge is the shelter for every storm. It brings peace, 
where there is provocation, joy where there is sorrow, and clarity where there was once confusion. Conditions are always changing, but they occur or arise on the ground of being, which is unchanging. Remember who you really are, that changeless reality. Conditions are always changing, but they occur or arise on the ground of being, which is unchanging. Remember who you really are, that changeless reality. Om. Once again, Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Orin J. Sofer. Again, I'm delighted to be able to talk with you about your book, Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. I'm always struck when speaking with someone from a Buddhist tradition about how many parallels there are between Buddhism and yoga, which I suppose shouldn't be a surprise in that they both originated in ancient India and have some roots, at least, in the Vedas. For example, in the spiritual teachings of yoga, it is taught that through the practice of contemplation, the study of the nature of consciousness, one seeks to know the truth and be free from suffering. Again, there's so many practices in the book that this resonates with. I'm I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's just, you know, so many things to talk about, you know, from your book. So what led you to write this book at this time? Yeah. A few different factors, Laurel. I think it's probably no surprise to most of your listeners, the subtitle, um, you know, Meeting a World in Crisis. I I think we're living at a particularly vulnerable and precarious moment historically. And I think something shifted for for our society, for our our global civilization in 2020 when, when COVID happened and the idea of inter- dependence, um, interconnectedness became a palpable reality for everyone immediately. (laughs) Um, It was no longer just a philosophical idea or even um, a kind of inner spiritual experience. It was a concrete reality of our daily lives. Um, And then ensuing from from the pandemic, all of these other upheavals, the sort of cultural and spiritual upheaval of George Floyd's murder, um, the wildfires across uh, the United States and North America, so climate change tipping into a new level of awareness for many people. During that year, I started writing about inner resources. It was one contribution I could make mm-hmm. um, to a time when so many people felt like the ground was falling away underneath them. Mm-hmm. And so um, the book is is really about what it is to be human during these times. Um, since then, of course, as you know from from the book, uh, I became a new parent. And so it's also been a way for me to grapple with the deep questions of how do we build a better future for our children and and what role does the inner life have to play in that? Mm-hmm. That is one of the things I just love about your book is you really, are looking both within and without, which we'll talk more about. But first I wanted to just touch on the title because I I meant to tell you that it's just 
a wonderful title. Your heart was made for this. And it's so, to me, so hopeful about mm-hmm. where we are. So w- would you say a little bit more about the title? Sure. Yeah. It's hopeful. It's also a little bit daunting at times or kind of a challenge. I have a good friend uh, who's also a Buddhist teacher and author, and um, he jokes with me sometimes. He says, my heart was not made for this. <laughs> and and I know what he means. I feel that way. I feel that way sometimes. So for me, the, the title has two meanings. Um, there's the meaning you referenced, which is this both a hopeful message, but also a reminder and a signpost, right, to um, illuminate the ways we fight with reality and believe when something is happening that um, either we don't like or um, we believe shouldn't be happening, often for good reason, if it's unjust or tragic. Um, And we say, I can't, I can't. No, you know, to actually recognize, and this is the truth. This is what what is happening, and that the way forward, uh, internally in terms of uh, spiritual freedom, and externally in terms of justice and equity, um, and really living into what's possible as human beings. The way forward is always through. It's always by engaging with the truth, not avoiding it or pretending or denying it. So this is one message of the book is that sense of we can turn towards what's happening when we have the right inner resources. Mm -hmm. The other meaning of the book, um, of the title, uh, and this is really, it's kind of the esoteric meaning or the inner meaning of the title, um, is, you know, what were our hearts made for? Mm. They were made to awaken. They they were made to uh, realize this flowering of all of the beautiful aspects of consciousness that I explore in the book. And so um, recognizing that whatever happens, whatever the result of our actions collectively and our efforts to avert disaster, we still have this potential to bring forth goodness and beauty in the heart. Mm. Yeah, so, so beautiful. I'm glad, glad I got a chance to ask you about that. in a way, when I was thinking about it, it, it actually reminded me of the quote, you know, if you think of our heart as our essence of being, you know, mm. and our essence of being um, it does have these resources, these mm. resources are available. And, you know, we have to, uh, we have to do the work to, you know, to mm-hmm. um, have them show up, but they yeah. are available. And, you know, that that is the hopeful part, I guess. Um, yeah of, you know, the title, your heart was made for this. And we can remember, you know, remembering who we really are. Um, there are, there are always resources, you know, that are available. So as I mentioned, I love the way that you integrate contemplation with action. Sometimes it seems to me that there's an either or kind of an approach about, about contemplation, particularly that if you're, if you're engaged in contemplation, you're removed from the world and that they it's sort of like never the twain shall meet. And why are you, you know, doing this navel gazing when the world is in crisis? Why are you taking this time and making that, you know, a priority when really, as you say, they, they're totally linked. So there was this one uh, part of the book that I thought I'd read in the introduction. You write, Personal and social transformation are inextricably linked. 
focusing on internal transformation without also applying our love and wisdom to the world, we may fail to respond effectively to the suffering of others. Similarly, if we focus solely on external transformation without simultaneously healing our hearts, we risk recreating the very ills we seek to address. How many revolutions have unwittingly replaced one domination system with another? And I just, I just can't tell you how beautifully I think that you, you know, you put that. So would you mm-hmm. say more about this, about how contemplate, uh, contemplation and contemplative practices help in our, in our efforts to deal with the world in crisis? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing this forward, Laurel. It's such an important point and an important topic for for all of us. I think whether whether we are already actively engaged in some kind of service or social change work, um, or uh, for those who are deeply engaged in a spiritual path um, and looking for a way to express their love and their care for the world. Um, so it, it helps in many different ways. I think one of the primary primary uh, gifts that contemplative practice has to offer our world is uh, a way of aligning means with ends, you know, as, as you pointed to in that quote, so that we are, um, you know, as Gandhi is famously quoted, of living the change we want to see in the world, um, transforming internalized oppression, um, transforming the unconscious supremacy, patriarchy, other forms of control and domination that we've internalized through society. Um, I I think it's worth just noting here, like what we mean by contemplative practice, which is this kind of, you know, somewhat peculiar phrase. And I I like to use this analogy um, about meditation and contemplative practice, uh, that meditation is to contemplative practice what running is to exercise. Mm -hmm. Right, so meditation is one form of contemplative practice, just like running is one form of exercise. We might not all enjoy or want to or be able to run, but we all recognize the body needs some form of exercise. So um, contemplative practice is anything that cultivates reflection and awareness that gives us perspective that explores the deeper questions in life of meaning, value, and purpose. And so I, I really see contemplative practice as a kind of medicine for mm-hmm. our times, for how stressed, overwhelmed, fragmented uh, our hearts and our nervous systems are. It's not just, as you're saying, not just something for um, esoteric, for spiritual or religious people. The foundation of contemplative practice is skill building, and mm-hmm. we all need inner resources. So when, when we come to this question of what is the role of contemplative practice, in social change, it is fortifying our hearts also. It's giving us the energy, the confidence, the courage, the resilience, the determination, the patience to sustain ourselves on the long, hard, um, uncertain road to collective liberation and freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very well said. One of the other things that you wrote in the introduction, which struck me was this, the structure of the book follows a fundamental progression in the psyche that Mm. repeats naturally in the process of spiritual awakening. Each of the book's four parts begins with a foundational factor that uplifts the heart. Each part then follows the arc of this cycle, gathering momentum, 
consolidating and stabilizing energy and culminating in freedom and release. I just, I just love that description. I thought it was a lovely description, a lovely way to build the book. So would you say mm. more about that, you know, that arc of that gathering momentum, consolidating mm. and stabilizing, and then culminating in freedom and release? Sure. Well, there's so much I could say about this. Um, I think what's, imp what's important to note is that we, we live in a lawful universe. So we live in a realm that follows certain certain fundamental laws. So there's the laws of physics and there's the laws of biology. Mm -hmm. um, and then the one of the great insights of the Buddha and to some degree, you know, various mystics and yogis is that the heart, the realm of the heart and the mind, the realm of consciousness has its own laws. There's certain um, fundamental universal truths. Um, and so one of the things we see in, in the practice of meditation and contemplation is that there are different kinds of energies that are necessary and helpful in any endeavor, different capacities or qualities. And um, there are capacities we need to settle and stabilize before doing anything. We need to gather our resources, show up, focus, settle in, right? And so this is like the beginning of, if you visualize a wave, if you visualize like a sine curve or a wave, right? So this is present in the heart in, in a certain way when we engage in, in, in any project or task or endeavor that has meaning we need these initial sort of initiating rather energies to get us um, engaged and then momentum builds we have to bring energy we have to have some motivation there can be joy there can be um, celebration this kind of rising of energy mm -hmm. and and then as a project or a task or an investigation um Furthers, there's a new phase. There's kind of um, a stabilizing. There's a, a consolidating of energy that then starts to get refined and settle uh, into things like um, balance and clarity mm. and patience and letting go. And so um, the the book is structured in this way. Each part structured in this way. But there are two things that are really important that I I hope listeners and those who go on to choose to read the book will take away. And one is that um, it's a little bit like a choose your own adventure guide. So you look <laughs> at the table of contents and you don't, I'm not anticipating people will read the book from start to finish, but rather open it up, look at the table of contents and think, okay, what do I need right now? What, what is the medicine for my heart given mm. what's happening? You know, do I need rest? Do I need to practice generosity or, or compassion or joy? Do I need to cultivate some curiosity or courage and be able to move around? Mm -hmm. One of the things that's necessary to be able to do that, you, this beautiful quote about self-knowledge at the beginning of our conversation, is a certain amount of discernment mm -hmm. about where am I at right now and what would be helpful and so that discernment can be, uh, we develop as one practices with this material in the book, 
and you get familiar with a little bit of that patterning, you start to recognize like, well, do I need something that's going to lift me? Mm. Do I need something that's going to soothe and comfort me? Do I need something that's going to collect and gather and steady me? Do I need something that's going to help me um, let go or open? And so those different aspects of the journey, we get a sense of them and then can tune into what's the right approach, what's the right energy, or, or I, I think of each of these chapters and each of these qualities as different medicines. So it's like, what's the right medicine that's going to uh, meet where I'm at right now? Mm -hmm. No, that's just really, really lovely. Um, <clears throat> so we mentioned, you mentioned in your example, um, meditation as a form of, of contemplation. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to not just pass that over. But since this show is a very, you know, uh, uh, we're very pro meditation on the show, and I've are, are always encouraged yeah. people along that way. Um, because in Kriya Yoga, meditation is, is just the most significant tool for transformation yeah. in the spiritual path. And I know meditation is also a central practice in Buddhism. Um, right. I was really happy to see that for each quality that you focus on in the book, and as you mentioned, there's just this beautiful list of all these positive qualities. Hopefully, mm. we'll, we'll talk through some of those um, in the second segment of the show. Um, but for each of those, you suggest um, both a contemplation and a meditation, which is just really lovely. So mm -hmm. would you say more about the role of meditation as a central practice in contemplation? Sure. Uh, you know, meditation is like exercise for the mind. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful way to, um, to train, uh, to like maintain is just sort of like mental hygiene, you know, spiritual psychic hygiene for, for the, the heart and the mind and, and also to, um, to explore, to explore the mind. So one of the analogies I like to use that, um, the Thai forest meditation master, Ajahn Chah, I think uh, is where I, I heard it first, you know, he used to say to his students, you know, well, do you brush your teeth every day? Do you bathe, you know, regularly? Yes, yes. Well, how do you take care of your mind? Yeah. Right? We're consuming all of this junk every day, not only from outside, but from inside, all of the things we waste our time thinking about. How do we clear the decks? Mm -hmm. And then and then how do we start to get a handle on how wild it is in there? <laughs> You know, it's really nuts. <laughs> if you start to look, the, the, the first insight most people have who meditate is, I'm bonkers. I had no idea how out of control my mind was. This is terrible. People who don't <laughs> meditate think everything's fine. And then you start to look inside and you recognize, oh my God, mm -hmm. this, this thing is like totally, totally wild. So um, the... The great news <laughs> is that um, we have um, many tried and true methods mm -hmm. to harness the power of the mind. And mm -hmm. so meditation is, is, is one way of doing that. And there are many ways of doing it. Meditation is one that speaks to me, obviously speaks to you and many of your listeners. Um, but what I love about um the Buddhist path in particular, which is my training, is a very creative path in a certain way. Meditation is a central, has plays a central role, but if you really study the Noble Eightfold Path, which is comparable to the eight limbs of yoga, and the Buddha drew on that sort of pedagogical structure, 
um, and you look at the the early texts, you see that he was quite creative in how he invited people to examine their lives and train their minds and free their hearts. And so there are many ways to do this. And anyone who has a practice of any kind, yeah. whether it's music or writing or art or cooking or service, knows that um, it takes dedication. We come up against our edges. We need to learn to let go. And we learn. We learn about ourselves. And then through that process, we grow and we become more free. Hmm. It's actually really great <clears throat> that you um, that you <clears throat> comment for you know new meditators. I think this often is a really a big stumbling block, right? Where there's all this stuff going on that is not what we expected. Yeah. <clears throat> and and um, at initially you just feel like it's almost like it's hopeless. <laughs> you mm -hmm. just have to persevere, you know, through mm -hmm. that. And we'll talk about attention in a minute. And I think that's one of the interesting things about starting to pay attention. And sometimes there's all this stuff going on, you know, that you're <laughs> that you're just not aware of. The right. other thing I wanted to point out is that you know you really focus on these positive qualities in the book. You mentioned some of them, you know, joy and wonder and. Um, you know, rest and et cetera. And you don't focus on any of the negative qualities. So you don't focus on, you know, fear or guilt or, um, and, and would you just comment, you know, on why you chose to structure the book that way? Because obviously all that other stuff is going on for people. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just encourage people to avoid and repress all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. No. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, so yeah, the chapters. So I don't focus on them in the sense that there's no chapters on them. But as as you as you know from reading some of the book, um, I I do engage with them. And the idea here is that yes, absolutely. As you know, you know these are central parts of our experience as human beings. Um, and in fact, um, the places that we struggle and suffer often contain very potent seeds of transformation. There's a certain kind of energy that gets bound up in consciousness um, when we struggle or suffer, when we feel afraid, we feel angry, we feel jealous, we feel lonely, despairing, confused, frustrated, all of these kind of snags in consciousness when they um, are released, when they open, release energy. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I, I take a trauma-informed approach to transformation through my work in somatic experiencing. And the idea here is that we, we want to build on our strengths and we want to orient towards our wholeness. Yeah. It's very difficult to you know, heal our inadequacy or fear or insecurity or overwhelm when we're just stuck in it. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. We're drowning. It's like, how do I get out of this? So often the first step is to find some ground underneath you and lift your heart a little bit, you know, cultivate some gratitude, notice beauty, try to enjoy something simple like a cup of tea or the sound of the rain. Mm -hmm. um, go on a walk and just remember I'm alive and I'm breathing and that this tree is sharing the air with me. Just very, come back to the basics. This, this creates a different context and it's the right context, it's the most conducive context for healing and transformation. So my interest in the book and the, oh, the whole reason that chapters are structured around these positive healing uh, supportive qualities is to 
give people as much resilience and strength and foundation as possible to then engage with the grief and the anger mm -hmm. and everything else. And so I talk about those challenges within the context of the beautiful qualities that can actually hold and heal them. Right. Yeah. As a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Oren J. Sofer, who teaches Buddhist meditation, mindfulness, and communication internationally. He's author of the book we're discussing today, Your Heart Was Made for This. You can find out more about Oren J. Sofer at his website of his name, Oren, O-R-E-N-J-J-A-Y Sofer, S-O-F-E-R, OrenJSofer.com. He's also on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Oren J. Sofer. These links will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, where you can also sign up for our mailing list to receive our newsletter, which contains highlights of prior episodes of the Yoga Hour and describes upcoming episodes. So moving on to specific things that you talk about the book in the book, you begin the book with a chapter on attention, mm. which I appreciated. Um, mm. You compared our attention to seeds, pointing mm. out that, and this is a quote from the book, each year billions of dollars flow in research, marketing, and persuasive design to attract and retain our attention for profit which I think all of us are, you know, have experienced that if you've ever been on, you know, social media and you realize how, uh, how catching of our attention it is. And obviously that's the whole idea. You know, people are doing that for profit. <clears throat> you also point out in the book, the seeds in our hearts and minds govern our perceptions, intentions, and actions in turn, mm -hmm. influencing the structures of society. We sow seeds of generosity, contentment, love, and joy, as well as seeds of fear, greed, hatred, and ignorance. Whatever we cast in the fertile soil of the heart-mind will grow when watered with the seed of our attention. I just really appreciated your, you know, starting the book there, pointing out, because mm. I think attention is, it's like, it's kind of like water uh, to the fish, right? It's hard. Mm. <laughs> it's hard. If yes. you, it's not a practice of yours, it's hard to kind of notice um, yes. how much, how key our uh, attention is. Yeah. And in pointing out that our consciousness contains seeds, which are watered by our attention, mm -hmm. I was reminded of the many spiritual teachings from many traditions that liken our consciousness to a garden and mm. the need in spiritual practice to become a more conscious gardener. Mm. So when we, and as we've talked about, when we first begin to pay attention to our attention, sometimes it's shocking or challenging to notice how much time we may waste on screens or some of the uncharitable thoughts we may have about ourselves or others. Um, I think it's really helpful to realize how much power we have over where we direct our attention. So you give a brief exercise mm -hmm. in redirecting our attention, and I thought it would be nice for listeners to just get a sense of that. So would you share that with our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that intro there, Laurel. So yeah, for folks listening, so just right now, whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting, walking, driving, on the bus, cooking dinner... <laughs> Uh, just don't need to change what you're doing. Just take a moment and feel the sensations in your hands. So maybe you're holding the steering wheel in a car. Maybe you're chopping some vegetables. Or just 
notice any sensations there in your hands, weight, pressure, temperature, moisture, dryness, okay? And now go ahead and um, notice the sounds around you, the sound of my voice, the silence or space between the words, okay? And now we'll do one more, just notice what you're seeing, seeing the road or the area around you, your kitchen counter. Okay, so what did we just do? <laughs> With my suggest at my suggestion, you just consciously moved your attention from your hands, your sensations in the body to hearing to seeing. So this is a very basic universal uh, capacity that we have. We do it all day long every day and barely notice it. Mm -hmm. uh, we barely notice it most of the time because the untrained mind is most of the time simply reacting to stimuli inside and out. Instead of consciously choosing what is the most useful place to place my attention right now, what do I want to focus on, we are um, pulled along by the demands and notifications around us externally and by every whim, worry, and impulse inside. You know, how, how often are you doing one thing and then a, a moment later you notice you're uh, on your phone doing something else. And then the thing you opened your phone for before you can even get to it, you're doing a third thing. And you're like, wait, well, how did I get here? What am I doing? Right. So, <laughs> so what's true. happening is attention is just ricocheting off all of these stimuli from around us and from inside. Now, we can get through a day. <laughs> Most of us, we can, you know, function, accomplish things. But the question is now, what happens when your attention gets stuck somewhere, when you're worrying about something and you recognize like this is not help helpful? Or you um, you really do need to focus and your mind is scattered. So essentially we can start to develop the capacity first to be more aware of where our attention is going. And this is a function of mindfulness, just paying attention, being aware from moment to moment and noticing like, what am I doing? What am I thinking? Where is the attention focused? Any moment that we're aware or conscious, there is attention and it's connecting with some aspect of experience inside or outside. So this is the first stage is just tracking, being starting to be aware of what am I doing with my attention internally, relationally, externally. The next step, is to bring some wisdom. And this is why the first chapter is not just attention, but wise attention. So we need to make um, informed choices about what we're doing with our intention, attention. We have to actually recognize what's useful right now. Is this nourishing me? Is this onward leading? Is this an activity, an emotion, a thought pattern that is worthwhile? to give my precious attention to in this moment? And then if not, what is? So this is the process of watering those seeds. This is the process of being the gardener. It's serving what, what, what's growing, right? And what, what is what's present in the field of consciousness and then choosing, yeah, that is a weed. I'm not gonna water that one anymore. It's not helpful. I'm gonna put attention here. Now that the, the nuance here is this is not about um, 
ignoring fear or worry. This is not about um, avoiding the painful and disturbing news because that upsets me. So I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to give it my attention. This is a, this is what gets known as a kind of toxic positivity where you know we we avoid anything disturbing because we don't want to um, feel unpleasant sensations or emotions. This is about making conscious choices about how to take care of ourselves so that we can engage with the difficult realities of our lives and our world from a place of more clarity and strength. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I want to say one more thing, Laurel, about attention, just to build on what you were sharing, because I do think it's so important when we look at um, the context we're living in, in terms of not just social media, um, but technology in general, advertising, the media. Um, the other reason I see many, many people have commented on um, that our attention has become a commodity yes. uh, is not just about generating profit, um, but also influencing action, right? If you can attract and retain someone's attention, you can get them to do things, mm. to vote in certain ways, to not vote, to engage or not engage. And so this is the other reason why it's so essential that we begin to recognize how valuable of a resource our attention is, each of us, and take steps to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the topic and your approach to it. Uh, it was reminding me as you were speaking of uh, one of the uh, yoga principles of the first limb is that ethical principles and it's um, uh, brahmacharya or right use of vital force. Um, mm. Being aware that we only have, we only have so much, we only have so much attention, we only have so much energy and where, where are we spending it? Um, Absolutely. It has to do with the, being a conscious gardener as we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. So we've been speaking about contemplation and meditation, attention, and now I'd like to turn to some of the positive qualities that you mention in your book. And Thank how God, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go there. Yeah. Let's talk about how, how they uplifting help. the heart. Yes, and how we, how these positive qualities can help transform our lives. So um, I, I really wanted to make sure we talked about joy. Mm. Um, so your chapter on joy begins with a great quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, which is, discovering more joy does not save us from hardship and heartbreak. In fact, we may cry more easily, but we will laugh more easily too. As we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We have heartbreaks without being broken. Mm -hmm. We have heartbreaks without being broken. That's so great, such a great quote. So in this chapter about joy, you write, uh, doing work, especially the work of service and social change requires both external and internal resources. We need resilience to face pain, strength to persevere through challenge, and joy to lift the heart. So that touches on the importance of joy. Would you say more about how the contemplation of joy helps us better our lives, especially when, when we look around, there's so much that is not joyful that is happening mm -hmm. in the world? Yeah. Yeah, how do we keep the heart open, you know, when uh, when there's so much pain? Yeah. And and when so much of it um, both feels and often is beyond our control. 
Um, how do we how do we stay connected and not just shut off or turn away? Um, I don't know what the equivalent of this is in in the yoga tradition, yoga traditions, but you know, in in Buddhism, we we particularly in engaged Buddhism, we, we talk about not turning away, actually turning towards suffering, right? Engaging um, so that we can respond and alleviate the the suffering, whether it's the sort of internal suffering of the heart mind or the external and relational suffering of our world, we need resilience to do that. We need we need um, strength and steadiness and courage. And joy is one of those medicines that is protective, that is um, galvanizing and strengthening for the heart. Um, I, I can share a couple different stories, I think that uh, one personal and, and one more social that I think really illustrate how, how this happens, how this works um, after October 7th and um, after the war in Gaza started, a good friend of ours was over uh, in the evening at some dinner. And then we were watching a lecture uh, about what was happening and the um, some of the history and some of the, the violence and the tragic loss of life. And um, it was heavy, really, really hard to, to watch. Mm -hmm. And our son, <laughs> who at the time was maybe about 14 months, um, was running up and down between the living room and the dining room, throwing his arms in the air, shouting, screaming, yeah! <laughs> just full of joy. Yeah. And our friend turned to us and said, there's nowhere else I'd rather be and no one else I'd rather be with right now to, to watch and learn about this than mm -hmm. with you guys. He's helping me be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Because his joy was just the joy of being alive. It was just so pure and abundant. It helped to balance the heaviness and the intensity of the suffering. Mm -hmm. I, I also want to share a short story about that I tell in the book, um, in actually in the chapter on gratitude, um, but it's it's connected, uh, which is about celebration, which is kind of um, a. a, a a related quality of joy. It's a sort of communal joy and gratitude moves into, into celebration. And um, this uh, is the story of a, a Quaker group in Pennsylvania who had been organizing for several years um, to work with PNC Bank, which was funding mountaintop coal removal. And you know, just destroying the uh, the landscape, and they finally were able to get PNC Bank to partially divest <laughs> from mountaintop removal coal mining. And uh, the one of the organizers who was working with the group talked about that victory, which was a partial victory. And he says, he says, we cheered amidst tears and relief. We weren't cheering PNC or even the policy change but the web of communities and practices of resistance that we're building a better world inch by inch. And so, so part of joy is also being able to take joy and pleasure and celebrate along the way, even, even when it's not exactly what we had hoped for so that we can nourish and sustain ourselves. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think it's just so important to recognize, as you were saying, sort of the medicinal quality of, of actually several things that you mentioned. So the joy, gratitude, 
and celebration is really wonderful. Yeah. Another of the positive qualities that you uh, write about is wonder, mm. which again, I really, I just really appreciated that focus. So what role does contemplation of wonder play in helping us deal with a world in crisis? Yeah. Well, again, so this is a great example, Laurel, of what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the progression of qualities and how they're different sort of almost like categories or classes of medicines here. So we can see that these ones we're talking about gratitude, joy, celebration, wonder, they're distinct in their experiences, but they all provide a similar kind of nourishment and sustenance for the heart, right? And so sensing what we need and then being able to kind of hone in on, you know, is it the cultivation of gratitude or connecting with wonder? So wonder plays, I think, a very important role in our lives, in our world today um, on so many levels. Uh, in terms of the, the historical moment we are living in and all of the different tipping points that we're sort of teetering on, um, wonder sparks reverence mm -hmm. and reverence leads to action mm -hmm. we protect what we love we will go out on a limb for what what we take um as sacred and beautiful and feel connected to and so wonder helps us to i think heal one of the the deep spiritual wounds that we're all suffering from and that I see as kind of a core cause of so much of the predicament we find ourselves in on the planet, this disconnection from the natural world and from our home on earth. Mm. Wonder helps us to heal that connection. It, it reestablishes a deep sense of belonging and our place on the planet and, and reminds us that just, just our existence itself is a blessing and a gift. Mm -hmm. And so through that cultivation of wonder, we feel a sense of kinship with life, with other creatures, with landscapes and ecosystems, and, and eventually with other human creatures. And so then our, our movement to help, to respond, to care, doesn't come from a sense of obligation or fear or even the perception or um, concept of separation, but really a natural movement of compassion just as the right hand cares for the left. Mm. And the, the beauty of wonder is it's all around us when we, when we know how to slow down and where to look. I was out with my son the other day. Uh, it's been raining here in California where I live a lot. Um, and we were just sort of squatting along the side of the road, watching the, watching the water flow, uh, sort of in the gutter on the edge of the road. And then just entranced by, uh, the ripples as each raindrop fell in the water and all of these ripples and ripples of circles expanding, we need to slow down. We need to be available and present to experience wonder, to remember wonder, and then to let it nourish and inform us in our relationship to the world. So anything can be a doorway to wonder. Mm -hmm. 
Great reminder. So I wanted to also touch on rest because mm. one of the other things that we know in our culture is that most people, maybe almost everybody, is not getting enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. And yet, again, you know, with the addictive nature of screens, I think people get sucked in and time disappears before they realize it. Um, you start the chapter about rest with a quote from Salma Farouk, if I'm saying mm. that correctly, which I really, I really appreciated. If the great ocean herself needs replenishment, what could make you think that you don't? Mm. If the great ocean herself needs replenishment, what could make you think that you don't? This is such a beautiful quote. So would you say more about that, the importance of rest? Mm. Yeah. Makes me want to just sit here and not. And not say anything. <laughs> to uh, that replenishment right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you you know you you really hit the nail on the head when you said just how how central it is and how hard it is. I think it's important to normalize how hard it is, how many of us struggle with rest, whether we're talking about just kind of literally getting enough sleep at night, whether it's because you know we're trying to work two jobs to make ends meet or stressed out about our life or the world. Um, Or it's just that sense of our nervous systems feeling fried because of the, the underlying uncertainty and anxiety on so many levels in our world today. It's the election year here in the United States, inflation, cost of food going up, all of the things I could, you know, run down the list. So there's a reason Right, there are many reasons why we're strung out and tired, um, and not taking that personally, not thinking of it as a sort of personal moral failing or something. Understanding the context—that's I think one of the first things for me that can be helpful. And, and then this reminder that uh, rest is one of the most natural things in the world. Everything has a cycle and a season. Right, you know, nature teaches us to rest a day and night. The seasons, the in breath and the out breath. There's a, a famous Zen teaching: you know, when I'm hungry, I'm eat. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I sleep. That's right. So uh, the reminder here is that this isn't something we need to do or learn. This is something our bodies actually know how to do. We just need to learn how to get out of the way and let our body remember how to rest. So um, another person I quote in the chapter on rest um, is Trisha Hersey, um, the Nat Ministry, Rest is Resistance is her book. And she defines rest, and I love this, as anything that connects body and mind. Mm. And what I love about that is just how broad that definition is and how much space it gives us to think about what can be restful, right? Like, knitting, taking a walk, um, doing something with our hands, engaging in conversation in a way that is uh, easeful and spacious for some people can be very, very restful. So our nervous systems essentially need downtime. And you know, evolutionary biologists look back and um, argue that our, our ancestors, when we were hunter-gatherers, 
had regular periods of time during the day where we were engaging in activities that were inherently regulating grooming, chatting, threshing, walking, these kind of rhythmic activities. So, you know, we need to learn how to rest um, for all <laughs> dimensions and aspects of well-being from the very sort of most fundamental physiological aspects um, all the way to sort of spiritual and social transformation. Um, so how do we do it? <laughs> how do we rest? I like to um, point to a few different things. Um, one is this play on words of uh, a rest in musical notation yeah. is a pause. And this is a wonderful practice for rest. And we can take a pause that is 20 seconds and have just a moment of rest. In fact, I'm going to invite us to do something that I usually don't do on interviews. Let's see how it feels to pause for 20 seconds, how long that actually is. And I want to offer a few pointers for how to get the most out of those 20 seconds, because a lot of the time, if we pause, what happens is we just feel the backlog of anxiety and rushing and pressure and distress that's present. And then the pause isn't nourishing. It's just stressful. So when we pause, if you notice that you're feeling keyed up, if it does feel hard to just relax or rest and enjoy those 20 seconds of quiet, some of the things you can do are choosing where you place your attention and placing your attention somewhere that feels soothing or restful. For example, feel the weight of your body or feel your hands resting in your lap or feel your breath and try to rest with the sensations of breathing. And if your body and your breath, if all of that feels too unpleasant and keyed up and anxious, think of something else that feels restful. Imagine a favorite place or being with an old friend and see their, their image in your mind's eye. Anything to bring some soothing to your nervous system in that quiet. So let's try it now. I'll start a timer. Let's be quiet together and see just how long 20 seconds is. pretty long. So the question is, are we able to get a moment of rest in those 20 seconds again, or are we just spinning? And if the mind is spinning, that's okay. Do we know how to redirect attention to something that feels soothing or settling to say, feel the weight of your body or notice your breathing and then use those 20 seconds to just touch into a moment of quiet and let the let the momentum, let the spinning, let the anxiety, whatever's present, just let it be here, let it burn off, let it roll through without needing to fix it or change it. So we can take a rest for a moment. You know, we look at the Abrahamic traditions going back 5,000 years, you know, the Sabbath is enshrined in uh, the Western Abrahamic religions of taking a rest every week, once a day, you know, in the old Testament, the cycles of rest are woven into the, um, the rhythms of the society that every, every 49th year is supposed to be a Jubilee year where the debts are forgiven and prisoners and indentured servants are freed. The land is meant to rest every seven years. So, um, I think we need to build in 
structures of rest for our day. And this, this we can do this starting in just very simple, concrete, direct ways. When you're sitting on the subway and you have a moment between things, instead of pulling out your device, you know, what would it be like to just close your eyes and breathe and feel your body or feel your hands? You know, when we are stressed out or overwhelmed or frightened inside and just being with the breath or the body is difficult, it doesn't feel restful, go somewhere else in your mind. Think of a favorite place from childhood. Think of an old friend, see their face. Bring in something that feels restful and nourishing in consciousness so that you can get that break. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting here that, again, you know, the, the advertising industry and in particular the wellness industry, of which I'm a part. I mean, I'm a meditation teacher. I've got meditations on all, you know, different apps and stuff, but, um, the the wellness industry co-opts our need for rest, repackages it, and tries to sell it back to us and says, hey, you can't rest here. Buy this. Do this. You know, not recognizing that yeah. we know how to do this. Our bodies know how to do this if we, if we can start to create the right conditions. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I mean, there's so much more I could say here, Laurel, because of course, one of the reasons it's hard to rest too is not just that we're busy, but we become identified with being busy and what that means. You know, we, we wear it as a badge, like I'm so proud of how busy I am or look how much I can accomplish or I don't have the right to rest. I have too much privilege in my life. I don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Or I don't or I don't have the privilege in my life to rest. I'm working all the time and raising children. How am I supposed to rest? And then we need to find those little moments mm-hmm. in the day. Um, and I think there's also a, a part of it that is about learning not only to listen to our bodies, but, um, but to trust them, to stop overriding our signals, uh, for rest and ignoring, ignoring that need, um, and beginning to actually be in dialogue and relationship with the body so that we can, um, step away from the screen for two minutes and rest our eyes mm-hmm. when we need to, um, or say, you know, I'm I'm gonna um, not respond to those emails and text messages and do something else that's restful when when the conditions allow. Yes, absolutely. There's such a cultural premium, a cultural value on busyness, and I yeah. think that's part of um, perhaps one way to begin paying attention is to see how much we've bought in. We've each bought into that. You know, it's better to be busy. Doing is better than being and all that sort Mm -hmm, of thing. mm -hmm. Well, unbelievably, we have come to the close of the program. So in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? Sure. Um, Well, everything we do and say matters. Every choice um, has has consequences, and the the good news is that the future is not written. You know, and this is we we don't know what's going to happen, and so um, there are things that each of us can do every day to um, to take care of ourselves, one another, and our communities. Mm-hmm. And so, my hope um, with with this book is that um, it can provide some of that. Uh, inspiration uh, and encouragement um, to get involved 
not in everything, <laughs> that's too much, but in something, in something, you know, what is, if you're not already um, engaged in, in some form of, you know, responding to all of the different challenges we're living through um, at any level in our families and our communities locally or more broadly, do, do, do some of that uh, reflection. What, what is yours to do? Mm -hmm. And then, Go out, find other people who are doing it and do it together. <laughs> Lovely. I was going to uh, point people, if you do get the book, um, one of the things we didn't get to talk, to talk about is um, aspiration, which I thought mm. was a really lovely, really lovely chapter. So and some great exercises in there to tap into our aspiration. You know, what is it that we you know, hope for? What, what can we bring forth? Yeah, thank you. For our, for our listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Oren J. Sofer, who teaches Buddhist meditation, mindfulness, and communication. He's the author of the book we've been discussing today, Your Heart Was Made for This. You can find out more about Oren J. Sofer at his website by that name, orenjsofer.com. He's also on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Oren J. Sofer. Thank you so much again, Oren, for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show, Laurel. It's a pleasure to chat. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's online meditation in the mornings at 6.30 a.m. That's Pacific time in the afternoon at 4 p.m. And then Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Listeners might also want to check out Kriya Yoga Today, another podcast. Kriya Yoga Today with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien which includes uh, presentations from classes and talks that she has given. You can find that through the CSE website, csecenter.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, these and many other classes and programs are listed on the CSE website, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour. Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're liking and enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leitinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.